Would you pray with me? Father, grant us deeper and stronger, more enduring faith. Father, as we hear your word and as we trust in what you've told us, what your word assures us of, what it reveals about you, Father, I pray that we would choose to go with truth and not just feelings, for our feelings can be so deceptive, particularly in times of struggle or difficulty or pain or confusion. Father, instead, I pray that we just walk faithfully with you. We would enjoy the grace in which we stand. We would do all things to please you. We give our best to honor you. And Lord, we rest, just rest in you. Lord, I pray that you'd cause this text today to speak. I pray that we'd be hungry to hear, hungry to receive it, hungry to act on it. And I pray, Father, that through what we hear today, what you show us, what your Spirit does through us and in us, among us, that there'd be some today that would be really encouraged. They'd walk out of here with a different perspective. There'd be some that'd be really challenged to walk out of here heading in a different direction. And there'd be some that'd be called to faith, leaving the old life behind and where that life was taking them. And instead, embrace you and receive the gift of salvation today that changes everything, now and forever. So, Lord, what I'm really praying for is supernatural things to happen today, things that can be attributed to you and you alone that will leave us all saying, that was God. God did that. God did that for me. God did that among us. So, Lord, make this time precious, useful, glorifying our good i pray in jesus name amen we're in acts chapter 26 we're coming pretty close now to the end of this bible study journey we've been on in the acts the acts of the holy spirit through the early church and getting close to the kind of the pinnacle point of paul's life i hope as we've been going through this i hope it's caused you to be um, a little more zealous for the scriptures, you know, to go back and read some of those things that Paul wrote, some of those letters that you're probably maybe a bit more familiar with than the book of Acts than you were at the beginning. Things that Paul wrote to the Philippians or the Galatians or the Corinthians, and you see the heart of the man, you see the life of the man, and you see that you really can't separate those two things. So in a few months when we're studying what Paul wrote to Timothy, for instance, and Paul tells Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely, you can see that's exactly what Paul did, that's who he was. We've been looking at his life, we've studied often his doctrine, and we see those things really can't be pulled apart. But I also hope it's giving you a greater sense of, of God, a greater sense of God's work in this world in ways that you sometimes see and perceive, and in ways sometimes you just don't. But as his people, we trust him nonetheless, and we try to walk faithfully with him, and we keep moving forward, we keep moving forward, we keep trusting, and we know that God's in it all, God's in all those details. We're not simply coasting along. But we're being responsive to where God leads and trying to be obedient to what God commands and trying to be faithful to Him as we go, giving it our best all the time, just being faithful and trusting Him that He's doing something beyond what we can see, something big, something beautiful, and something for more than just our sake. I hope part of what you've heard of the last several weeks has rescued you a little bit from unintentional self-centeredness. You know, it's really all about me and what's happening in my life to maybe seeing something a little bit bigger. What's God doing around me and through me and in the people's lives that I know. So I hope all those things are starting to come to some fruition. 
We're in chapter 28 now, the very last chapter. And the context of this is, if you recall, Paul has just survived, among so many other things and difficulties, a shipwreck. And we saw how the providence of God was at work in that shipwreck, which caused this to happen. And this is the simple but powerful conclusion to the last chapter, verse 44, chapter 27. They were all brought safely to land. And again, we know that was through God's providence. And God's providence doesn't make puppets of people. It's God's providence that works in the decisions of people. It's God's providence that works in the will of people, not over the will of people. It's God who works both in the Romans who were aboard that ship, acting as soldiers, the captain of that ship, the convicts on that ship, the apostle on that ship, and everyone else involved. And God is bringing about his plans. And it's good to know, you know, when things look just so squirrely on our end, and out of sorts, and out of control, unpredictable, to know that God is freer and stronger than anyone or anything, any of us. And God's providence is at work. But this journey, and I don't want to be too cliched, so sort of track with me what I'm saying here. I'm using this as a metaphor. This journey of Paul's is not over. I mean, we know that the aim is to get to Rome, because when Paul gets to Rome, he's going to stand before the most powerful human being on earth, in the most influential city on earth, the city to which every other city tracks itself in the known world, where the influence that starts there can go out into the known world. So, I mean, this is the pinnacle, this is the aim, but it's more than just the destination. God is working some things all along the way. And as you write that phrase down, I want you to write it, circle it, along the way, all along the way. I want us to think that way with our own lives. It's not just, what is God going to do with me ultimately? What's God's will for my life? Sometimes I think we look at God's will for our lives a little bit like we would a horoscope. You know, just give me a specific direction. Give me a specific plan. Give me a specific aim. And we forget about the all along that God is doing. I want to give you a great passage of Scripture. This one's not in your notes. Write this reference down so you can revisit it. It's one of the most powerful passages in Scripture about the will of God. And how God is sovereign in all those things. And how he wants us to perceive what he's doing along the way. This is from James. Chapter 4, verse 13 and following. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You fill in the blanks. Whatever you say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go there. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and we'll do this or we'll do that. I mean, for all of us who want this chart to go by, this, this game plan to follow, this map to track, God says, who do you think you are? You're here for a brief time. You do what God wills you to do. And while you're doing what God wills you to do, that tomorrow, that mundane day at the office, or back in the classroom, or at home with the kids, or out by yourself in the field, whatever it may be, what is God doing right now in my life along the way? Because he's sovereign over that. He's not just sovereign over getting Paul to Rome and what happens there. But I hope you've seen in these last several weeks of the details of Paul getting there, that God's doing things all along the way. Why else would the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to write down for three or four chapters that, if we're honest, when we're doing those through the Bible scripture readings, we, boom, fly right through because it's just sort of narrative. I get it, Paul on a boat, blah, 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 he's traveling. 
Why? So we would see this all along the way. I've got a question for you as you think about Paul along the way. If Paul wanted to go to Rome, and we know he did, we know that was his aspiration, and we know that God wanted him to get there, have you ever thought or wondered why was it so hard? I mean, again, Paul wanted it. That was the desire of his heart. And he desired what God desired. And he was being obedient to what God told him must happen. You add those two things together. God wants me to do this. I want to do this. So why is it hard? Why is it painful? Have you ever considered? Well, there are at least three reasons I think that we've seen over these last several weeks in the text in which you'll see somewhat today. One, don't forget this one. God glories in the salvation of the lost. Nothing brings him more glory than to save those who are far from him, to deliver them from sin and from darkness. And God is making his name great as Paul goes. And sometimes God scatters his people. Sometimes according to their plans and desires, sometimes against their plans and desires. Sometimes you, you get on a boat and you're headed one place and God takes you somewhere else. Sometimes you think you're going to do this, and God says, no, you're going to do something else. But all along the way, God's using the Apostle Paul and those Christians that are with him, and his name is going everywhere. The name of Jesus is going everywhere. Don't underestimate that. There's a method to this, what seems, from the human perspective, madness. There's a divine plan of God that's for the good of all those people. So sometimes when you look at those biblical maps, maybe you've got some in the back of your Bibles, and you see a map just depicting the journey. And you just flip through it. It's just, you know, a curiosity. Recognize that each of those points on the map, much like you saw in that video, those are points of God's grace. He's getting to people. He's getting the gospel to those people. And sometimes it takes shipwreck to do that. And so it's God's glory and the salvation of lost. Also, don't forget this part. And, and this is huge. This is really, I was thinking of this this morning, and sometimes I'll tweak a little bit or add something to the message. That's why they get long sometimes because of Sunday morning. But I was thinking about this and thinking, this is a message unto itself. God is working for the sanctification of his people all on the way. He's teaching them things like how to pray, how to have faith. He, he's teaching them that I work in both the end and the means, and the primary means that we see in Scripture through which God works in his people and for his people is prayer. Prayer is not superfluous. Prayer is essential to the plans of God. So we pray so that God does and God acts and God responds in relationship to our praying. And so he's teaching his people. One thing you can't help but notice, and I started charting this this morning. I thought, no, it'll take way too long to get there. And maybe this is a good personal study for you as you revisit Acts. You can start back in Acts chapter 9 and trace your way from Acts chapter 9, chapter by chapter, all the way through Acts chapter 27, and see how many interactions that Paul has with other believers. See how often the church, the people of God, Disciples of Christ, the body of Christ, the family of faith, see how often they're involved in the story. I mean, we often think of Acts as being, of course, and we should, primarily about the work of the Holy Spirit, but in human terms, activated through the work of one person, the Apostle Paul. But there's nothing in Scripture anywhere that speaks of or even knows of a solitary Christian. And as heroic as Paul is, as dynamic as he is, as, a, as such a powerful singular figure out there taking the gospel to the nations, he's never alone. And the prayers of the people and the support of the people and the ministry of the people to him are always there. People of faith and scripture are always people of community. They're always connected to a spiritual community. So again, over and over 
and over. And if Paul could not fathom carrying out the work of Christ alone, being faithful to the call of Christ alone, persevering in his faith alone, if Paul couldn't and wouldn't, how in the world do we think we can or will? We need the church. That's, that's the way God designed it. That's the way God designed us. And so we see this interaction, and it's, God is sanctifying not just Paul, not just Luke, not just Barnabas, but all those Christians along the way who are touched by the story. Look at how God has answered our prayers. Look how God has provided. Look how God has protected. Look how God is carrying on the mission. And of course, ultimately, we see just the sovereignty of God. And every Christian, again, would know, God, God did that. How did they get through that? How did he survive that? How did they overcome that? Whether it's people who wanted to imprison them, beat them, or murder them, or governments who wanted to suppress or oppress or imprison them, or whether it's what looks like the forces of nature conspiring against them, and all those things, who is supreme? God. Supreme over everyone and everything again and again. So today I want to focus on just two object lessons from the text, okay? Two object lessons. The first one was object lesson of a snake, okay? I did a sermon once, I may have told you this years ago, I did a sermon once from the book of James about sin. And how sin, when it's finished, brings death. And, and I used as an illustration a snake. And I had a box here on the, on the front of the stage in which I had a big snake. And this, this was a snake that I had. I kept in my office for a while. It was a, it was a ball python. And, you know, I pulled that snake out. And the whole time I'm pulling the snake out and talking, I was just really hoping and praying that it didn't do anything crazy to me. Like, you know, like start squeezing my arm hard or bite me or anything like that. And I used this illustration. I'm going to spare you the illustration of a real snake because the story is compelling enough, Okay. Listen to what it says, verse 1 of chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, that's chapter 27, we learned that the island was, island was Malta. And you can see a map, here's Malta, here's the journey, this is where they went, this is where they traveled. They go to Malta. Scripture speaks well of the people when they arrive in Malta. Some translations have them described as barbarians. We can see that's not the case. They were pagan for sure, pagan in the sense they had never heard the name of Jesus, but barbarian behavior, no. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So you get the story. They build a fire. Paul goes over where there's some wood stacked. He grabs some more wood to throw on the fire. And what do you know? There's a snake in the pile of wood, and it latches itself onto him. Now, that it's a viper would indicate to us, this is a poisonous snake. And now all of a sudden it's bitten Paul, and we see the picture of it. It's dangling from his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Did, did you catch that? Okay, justice will prevail. This is how justice works. Justice works like this. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people, and you will be found out. It's going to turn out this way. See, you thought you were going to get away with it. You, you thought you'd overcome the trials. You thought you'd overcome the sea, but now the snake finally, and you get what's, you're getting what's due to you. That's what they said. This man must be guilty. He's getting what he deserves. Verse 5. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, I would like to watch that in a scene. I don't know if 
the Apostle Paul is like cool hand Luke in his character or nature. I don't know. But the scene is, you know, he shakes it off, the snake burns up in the fire, and it's like, hey, how's it going? He doesn't, you know, that's it. It's over. It's done with. He's not bemoaning. He's not crying. He's not sick. Nothing. He shakes it off, suffers no harm. They're waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and thought that he was a god. I mean, can you imagine them just stepping back from the fire, mouths wide open, no one saying a word, and they're just looking at him, waiting to see what's going to happen next. They've seen this play out before. They've seen people bitten by snakes. They know what to expect. But when nothing happens, he's not a murderer anymore. What is he now? He's not guilty. He's, he's a god. That's their response. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So God uses this whole strange interaction and this incredible event subjecting Paul to, to snake bite only to supply the people with all their needs. That's, that's providence. God causes them to land there. They get well taken care of there, save for Paul, who had a momentary struggle. I'm sure it was very unpleasant. And then the people get cared for. Let me give you some thoughts on this, some applications from that object lesson of that snake. First one is this. Life isn't fair. And I use the word fair in quotes. When I say fair, Life doesn't always bring you what you think it should bring you or give you what you feel like you deserve. God never promises that. In fact, I think for many, the first great surprise of the Christian life is in the form of trouble, difficulty. That's what Eugene Peterson said in his book about discipleship and a long obedience in the same direction. He said the first thing that throws Christians off is that they face difficulty or trouble, and they don't know how to deal with that. They weren't told that was coming. In fact, so often in modern Christianity, we're told the opposite. We're told the means to ease and prosperity is Christ. So when it doesn't happen like we thought, we get thrown off. Life isn't fair. In his great little book, which this is uh, highly recommended, if you're trying to figure out what God wants you to do, big things and small, life things, daily things, a great book on God's will is simply called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Just do something. And one of his quotes in Just Do Something is this. He says, if you think God has promised this world will be a five-star hotel, you'll be miserable as you live through the normal struggles of life. But if you remember that God promised we would be pilgrims and this world may feel more like a desert or even a prison, you might find yourself surprisingly happy. We reorient ourselves on, on truth. And remember for Paul, when I said life is not fair, I deserve better than this. Why am I not getting something different than this? I want to plant this thought, which is deeper than I'll have time really to develop, but Paul had a very clear theology of personal slavery. I know that's not a popular word, but that's the word that Paul used regarding his relationship to the Lord, among many. You heard it, by the way, just in the scriptures read this morning, our call to worship, Romans chapter 1. When Paul said, and he often said this in his introductions, Paul, as servant of Christ, he's using the word slave. He's not using the word of employee or indentured servant. 
An employee or indentured servant may work under the authority of someone or at the direction of someone, but when that time period is over, they get to go home, and now they do whatever they please. They do whatever they please with the earnings. They live wherever they please. They go wherever they please. They're relatively still autonomous. But Paul didn't see himself that way. So he didn't see what came to his life or in his life or happened to him in his life as unfair because his life belonged to Christ entirely. Let me give you just a few examples of the things that Paul said and wrote about this. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 and 8. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So when, when Paul's standing there, I don't know what was going through his mind. We didn't have uh, that insight in the text, but I can imagine it was that sort of thinking. If this is it, if God, for whatever reasons known to God alone, has decided that this close to Rome, I'm not getting there, then so be it. Whether I live or die, I'm the Lord's. Can you imagine that sort of thinking? And that totally transcends any sense of, of justice or fairness or, God, I'm not getting what I deserve. My life belongs to the Lord. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, 23, speaking to all of us as believers, you were bought with a price. You were bought. You're owned. You're owned by Christ. He possesses you now. He delivered you. He rescued you. He redeemed, redeemed you. You're bought with a price. And then he flips it. Do not, therefore, become slaves of men. You're a slave of Christ. Don't live so lowly and poorly that you become a slave of men, doing what they want. Do what God wants for your life. Because God is benevolent and good, and just and kind and merciful, gracious and generous. Serve Him. Number two, our, our sense of justice is just plain wrong sometimes. It's just plain wrong. Again, that's obvious in the text. I won't belabor the point. But what they thought is really kind of how people think today. Um, something bad happens in your life. Even your Christian friends sometimes will be much like Job and his counselors. If they don't say it outright, they'll be wondering at least, what did you do to deserve that? What did you do to deserve that? And this happens among all kinds of Christians. I can remember when I was part of a monthly prayer group. It was a non-denominational, interdenominational prayer group. And this was, I was young in ministry and I already had a son who was diagnosed with autism, which we had a number of difficulties with. And then unbeknownst to most of you, because she's so bright and, and smart and talented now, I have a daughter who was also diagnosed with autism before two years old and began doing a lot of intervention treatments. I remember sharing that with this group that you know, we have this son and I have a daughter and they're both diagnosed and, and we're struggling. And I can remember so vividly these men wanting to gather around and pray for me, not to encourage, but to to challenge me to confess sin that I hadn't confessed. And I couldn't help but think of Job and his counselors. Maybe you mean well. But if your theology is this, you're getting what you deserve, I promise you, you are wrong. Because if we all got what we deserved in this room, it would be hell for all of us. I'm not asking God to give me what I deserve. I am pleading with God on the daily, give me mercy. Give me mercy we just don't have a good sense of it. And justice can't be measured by these circumstances. You know, he, he's getting what he deserved. And also, just let me throw this out there real quick. Justice is not a force, by the way. Uh, that's what they say. You know, justice will be done. Justice will prevail. In the end, you can't outrun justice. 
Well, justice is God. And God will give justice to those, really to us all. Will we either be treated according to Christ or will we be treated according to ourselves? If we're in Christ, if we've received forgiveness and righteousness of Christ, we get the just treatment that Christ deserved. He is sinless, and we get, we get his treatment. If we refuse and reject Christ, never embrace Christ, then we do also get ultimate justice. We get everlasting condemnation and hell for our sins. Either way, finally, and totally there's justice. Number three, I'll remind you again, as you've probably heard a number of times from me, God caused or God allowed pain is purposeful for his people. It's purposeful. We don't look at this situation and say, oh man, that was, that was unfortunate. Paul was just unlucky, you know, because this pile to the right didn't have any, any snakes in it. Pile to the left did. Bad luck, Paul. As, as if God is not involved in these things. You know, if you and I didn't have any hope that God was actually involved, and there's reasons why we're dealing with what we're dealing or going through, and that God is teaching and healing and present and, and purposeful and all those things, man, how hopeless would we be to think that we're just victims of fate and circumstances and junk? You know, that's, 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 not, that's not Paul. Paul sees all along, that's why he writes so much about it, all of his physical suffering is an off opportunity for him to display Christ. He, he knows that Christ suffered for us, so if I can suffer and in my suffering make Christ known, then, then that's a win. So Paul's pain here for a moment was an open door for God to heal their pain. So God allows, causes, Paul to be bitten by this snake, shows his miraculous power in healing Paul, which opens the door for those who are sick there to come to him and bring other sick people with them so God can heal them as well. Now again, that actually happened, but it's also a physical, spiritual picture. What God did physically, he'll do spiritually. Your hurts, he doesn't waste. And his healing of your hurts, he intends to be an opportunity, an open door to heal someone else's. What, if, what has God brought you through? What has God restored you from? How has God worked in your life? What has he delivered you from? What has he done? How has he demonstrated himself? What power has he shown? I hope you're consciously asking, thinking, considering, God, how might you use what you did for me for somebody else? For somebody else. Somebody else needs that too. And what he did for you is an open door. And so this pain is, is purposeful. What if your suffering is for the sake of someone else? What if you could hear an audible voice that tells you, God says to you, I'm going to cause you to suffer, but I'm going to do that for the healing of someone else. Would you be willing to receive it? I guarantee you, Paul would have. And particularly, what if it's for someone's eternal sake? What if it's, I'm going to put your life through such a ringer. I'm going to inflict such loss and pain in your life that you're going to be attractive to every other person who's hurt like you have. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to put Jesus on display here. And your life is going to be like a clarion call for all those other people who have lost a spouse or a child who've been diagnosed with cancer or have a child with special needs or who've lost a job or the list just goes on and on and on and on. I'm going to put your life there. Will you, will you reflect me there? 
Because you can do things there that the person who hasn't been where you've been and been healed like you've been healed can't ever do. Would you be willing to do that? A fourth one, and this point is not nearly as valuable as the others, but I'll offer it to you anyway because I find it to be interesting, and it's in the text. Just to remind yourself, people can be really fickle. People can be really fickle. This is not the second time this has happened to Paul, by the way. If you remember in chapter 14, something very similar happened. Paul shows up on the scene, and God uses him to heal a man who's crippled. He's been that way since birth. He's never walked. And as soon as God heals the man, all of a sudden the people start saying, the gods have visited us. You remember this in chapter 14? Barnabas gets a little bit of the short shrift. They call him um, Hermes. He's the messenger of the gods. And the big god is actually that little balding, stooped-over man who walks with a, a, a lilt and a, and a limp. And that's Paul. And they said, he's Zeus. Remember? And the scripture also says, literally in, in Acts chapter 14, quote, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. A couple of verses later, some false accusers come, stir everybody up, and what does the scripture say? And then they stoned him, dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. How do you go from, this is Zeus, Zeus has visited us, kill him. <laughs> All right, that's people. It's human nature, they do the same thing this time. And because people can be like they are here, you know, he's a murderer, he deserves to die, Justice has come, or he's a criminal, whatever they thought he was, whatever they thought he was guilty of, to now he's a God. Don't spend your life seeking man's approval, okay? That, that's kind of the lesson here. Don't, don't sit, spend your whole life seeking man's approval. Listen to what Paul wrote. And I'm intentionally connecting dots, drawing lines between the life of Paul and the writings of Paul. So catch this one. This is Galatians 1.10. Am I now seeking the approval of man? Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant, same word, slave of Christ. It, it, you see how Paul was thinking here? Listen, here, this is my life. This isn't just one situation or circumstance. In general, I, I'm not a slave of man. I'm not trying to please man. I'm not trying to appease man. I'm not trying to make man happy or do what man wants me to do. I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. I'm not anti-man. I, I'm, I'm giving my life for the sake of the salvation of those that God has called me to. But I live for the pleasure of God, God alone. I was in, I was in Home Goods the other day, and there was a full-length mirror over on one wall on display. And I just had to be walking down the aisle, and I caught at the corner of my eye, and there was a, a teenage girl there in front of the mirror, which is not so unusual, I know. Um, no offense to the teenage girls in the room, but she had her camera out. And she was doing selfies, and I don't mean just like one or two. And I don't want to sound like I'm being weird, because I wasn't being weird. I had to force myself to keep walking. But she took a lot of selfies. She was moving her hair and, you know, doing all these things. I'm thinking, it would be curious to me. I wish I had her Instagram just to see where all these selfies go. And I thought, has this become our new norm, even in simple, silly ways like this? Consciously and subconsciously, we live for other people's approval. We want so much to be liked and accepted and approved. And Paul says, if your foundational life principle is man-pleasing, you become man's slave. But if your foundational commitment is God-pleasing, you can enjoy life as a servant of Christ. Don't spend your life seeking man's approval. God's opinion is the one that counts. Always. God's opinion. Can you imagine all the accusations Paul, he, Paul heard? Can you imagine all the things Paul heard said about him? 
Can you imagine the challenges to him, to his intentions and motives and character, all the lies told about him? Man, any lesser man would have buckled a thousand times over, would have buckled in the arena a thousand times over, but not the one who's bent on, God, I will please you here because I'm who you want me to be and I'm doing what you want me to do. And that's what God wants from all of us. Be who God wants you to be. Do what God wants you to do and let God take care of all those things. As I said early in the message, you'll walk with God daily. Walk with Him daily. Get up today and say, God, I want to walk with you. I'm going to rest in your grace. I don't have to earn you. I have you. I have you by grace. I'm in your hands, and I'm going to do my best. I'm going to walk with him daily. I'm going to rest in his grace. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to let God take care of everything else. Real quick, let's look at the second object lesson, the ship. I'll do this one fast because I don't think it's as significant as the first, but I do want to make a couple of small points from it. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli, or something like that. There we found brothers. Circle that. There we found brothers. We found some more. How'd the gospel get to them? Somebody somewhere took the gospel to them. But there's the church. We found brothers. We were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, we'll pick up Paul in Rome next week, and that'll finish our journey. They finally made it. And all the maneuverings and meanderings, surviving shipwrecks, snake bites, and here they are finally in Rome. Now Luke, as I noted in your notes, is both a, a physician and historian and a, and a theologian. God used him for all those things, the writing of a gospel, the capturing of the story of the birth of the church and its spread, his partnership with Paul. He had a keen eye for detail, and I, I also believe this, because the Bible says it, every word of Scripture is inspired and it's profitable. All of the words. doesn't mean they're all equally profitable, but they all are equally inspired. So they're there for a reason. There's nothing just accidental or incidental in it. And so there's one little detail I just want to direct your attention to for a moment. A ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Now you can picture this wooden ship, right? And on the bow of this wooden ship, a carved figurehead. Now this carved figurehead had two figures coming out together. Twins. The twins here are Castor and Pollux. The twin sons, depending on if you're Greek, then they would be the sons of Zeus. If you're Roman, they're the sons of, of Jupiter. But in ancient belief, what were they responsible for? They were the ones that guaranteed safe passage for those at sea. They were the ones that guaranteed protection for those in grave danger. It's almost as if it's an irony being presented here. An irony that they probably would have understood better. Maybe they even would have had a chuckle at it. Of all the things that God did for Paul and how God got Paul from place to place to place, I can assure you what it wasn't. It wasn't Castor and Pollux. It wasn't these so-called demigods, sons of Zeus or sons of, of Jupiter. And it's almost there, I think, again, for this intentional, not unintentional, but intentional irony. 
The world thinks this is what's happening. The world thinks this is what's behind the scenes, or this is who's in control. Or, no, God, the story of this is all God. And we don't often see or credit the hand of God enough. That's what I think. I think we don't often see or credit the hand of God enough. It wasn't skillful captains. And it wasn't semi-gods. And it wasn't circumstances. It was the Lord God Almighty behind all of this, accomplishing His will. And what we think are those primary causes? Well, they're there because they chose to go there. Or they're there because the captain did this at that moment. Or they're there because that Roman centurion refused to let them do this. No, no, those are all secondary things. The great cause is always God. So that's why I put in your notes, throughout his journey, there's one captain in Paul's life, and it's not Paul, and it's no one else. It's God. It's God. Always at the helm of his ship, and ours, if you're in Christ. So, I want you to take away some particulars today for you. I mean, I want you to have appreciation of the story and the magnificence of God in it, but I want you to take away a few things to consider for yourself, Okay? If you were in a situation like Paul's, and of course it won't be like that, just apply it to whatever you might be going through. If you're in a situation where you're hurting, treated unfairly, falsely accused, going through unexpected or very deep pain, any of these things, any sort of distress, when that happens to you, what do people see or who do people see? At your worst, or when the worst is coming to you, in your worst circumstances, what comes out? What do people see? I don't want to overly simplify the story of Paul and the journeys of Paul, but again and again, a constant theme is hardship, difficulty, pain, suffering. He's maligned, he's falsely accused, he's mistreated, he's abused, he's nearly killed again and again. When those things come, do people see Jesus in you or do they see the worst of you? I mean, think back to how many times you're having to give this as an explanation or an apology. Man, I'm sorry. It's just, it's, it's been a rough, it's been a rough season for me. I'm sorry, man. I'm just, I had a terrible day. I, I, man, I, I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I blew up on you like that. I'm sorry I responded like that. I'm sorry I acted like that. You, you just don't know what's going on in my life. And instead, here's what, Here's what Paul is doing with each one of those difficulties. He's seeing them as opportunities to display Jesus. And, I mean, you want to set a high target for yourself? He's doing it even with with joy. He counts it as joy to be able to suffer for being where God wants him to be, doing what God wants him to do. What do people see? And listen to this again. I've read this to you before in this series, but let me hit it again. It's so, so powerful. Philippians 1, 20 and 21. Listen to what Paul said. It's my eager expectation and hope. Critical words. It's my eager expectation. This is what I expect of myself. This is my aim. And this is my, my desire. I'm trying to do this, and God, with your help, with your grace... I hope I will do this. This is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Ashamed, what does he mean by that? That I would let down Christ? That I would diminish the testimony of Christ? That, that I would make small 
the bigness of Christ, I, I expect and I hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you, do you catch that? So in this moment where it's so hard, so painful, can you imagine Paul? I can Imagine him even praying in that moment. He's got the snake hanging on his hand. He's got the poisonous viper. Can you imagine him thinking or saying in his mind, God, with courage, be honored in my body right now, whether by life or by death. If by serving you I have to die, then be honored. You know, just, just imagine what people see in those moments. What does it say about Christ? Number two, have you ever considered the potential impact of your life? if you will yield it to God. And I say potential, and maybe you can put an asterisk beside that or a star or a question mark because I'm going to say unknowable potential. The unknowable potential of your life yielded to God because you can't know it. You, you, you've heard of the concept of the butterfly effect and the, the idea of this chaos theory that the flapping of a butterfly's wings creates this series of events that eventually can create tropical storm or typhoon, etc. I use it as a metaphor of a decision made, a choice made, a word spoken, a response given, obedience happening here, rippling out, rippling out, rippling out in ways you just can't even know. I mean, I think about Paul's life, and this is what I'm just imagining as I'm thinking through the story. How many people heard about Jesus, heard the good news of the gospel, because he was willing to keep going and keep suffering and pay the price? How many people heard? How many people responded to the gospel? We don't even know. We do know churches are popping up, so we know people are getting saved. We know communities are happening, because that's how churches are birthed. People come to Christ, they become disciples, they become churches. The modern way, we tend to flip that. We say, look, we can start a church and we can get, make some Christians. No, no, Christians. Make some Christians, you get churches. How many people saw the power of the gospel on display? Maybe that's pre-evangelism. But it surely glorifies God. I don't want to read into this text what's not there. We saw all these people getting healed. I don't know if they knew the language, had a, a way to convey the gospel or not. They certainly conveyed the power of the gospel there, the power to, to heal and to change. How many? Listen, I'm just, I'm just laying that out there, just sort of big blanket. You yield your life to God. You say, God, I just want to walk with you daily. I want to rest in your grace. I want to do the very best with what's in front of me. Who knows what the impact might be? You won't ever know until you get on the other side of this. Finally, I give you this question. Just for somebody in the room particularly who's just off base, I mean off course, off path of where God wants you to be. If you're a Christian and you know God's got something different in your life, I mean you're the, you're the personification of the proverbial prodigal. You're the one that I know ought to be living like this, but I'm living like this. I was there. I lived that way for a number of years of my life. When you're there and you're a Christian, you know it. You don't need me to convince you of it. You know it. You know you're not where God wants you to be. You know you're not doing what God wants you to do. You know you're not in the places God wants you to be or the people God wants you to be, and so you're not going to get any of the results God wants you to have for your life. And the pain that you have is, is not this same sort of pain because God's leveraging your life for good things. It's pain you're bringing on by disobedience and foolishness. You're under the disciplining hand of God, okay, if that's you. And you know it because that's how that works. You know it. If you stay on this course right now, where is it going to lead you? Where is this going to lead you? I'm not saying that if you're truly in Christ, you're going to 
drop off the map and you're not going to find heaven. I'm going to say you're going to live a life of quite a bit of unnecessary pain. And remember, we said this last week, you're not an island. You're going to cause others. You're going to drag others down with you. You're going to affect the faith of others. You're going to break the hearts of some. You keep going where you're going. Where's that taking you? I mean, every now and then you just got to look up and say, where am I headed here? What am I doing? Where am I going? And I don't want anything I've said to say it's all just automatic. God wasn't, Paul wasn't just on automatic pilot. Listen, if you want to rebel, we saw the consequences of that last week. You want to rebel, you want to jump off the ship where God is taking you, have at it. And suffer all the consequences along the way. Where are you going? But even more importantly, if you're not a Christian, the track you're on right now, the life you're going, the thing you're doing, the things you're after and that matter to you and the things you're aiming for, you keep doing that, where is that going to lead you? Listen, I, I can't promise you that you're not going to enjoy your life or you're not going to get wealthy or you know, you're not going to have a big family or a lot of fun things. You know, I don't know. But I can tell you this, without Christ, you will die, you will face God. You will give an account to yourself of everything you've ever said or done or thought. Every guilt will be clear and undeniable. And the judgment that God places on you at that moment is eternal. And we only have two possible outcomes. We either enjoy Christ forever as His people in the new heavens and new earth, or we feel the weight of conscious torment and the justice of God for everything we've done forever in a place called hell. That's it. And I was thinking about that. I said, man, that's not pleasant at Christmas time. Listen, we're about to sing this song, and I want to read to you the last two verses. The song is called Christ is Mine Forevermore. And we, we chose this song to remind us that we, like Paul, are on a journey, and God is working not just on the destination, but all points in between. And God's doing things we can't see. But listen to what the last two, the chorus and the last verse says. The chorus, come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. The last verse. And mine are keys to Zion's city, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. Christ is mine forevermore. You can sing that with us in a moment, but if you're not a Christian, that will not be your story. This is not just a happy ending. Everything will turn out fine. It's all going to be great and then. Hey, don't worry about it. That's not the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is repent, consciously, intentionally, turn from the direction you're headed, repent, believe the good news, believe this gospel, that you can be forgiven in Christ, you can have your life changed, you can have the righteousness of Christ that, that you don't deserve, and you can follow him, you can follow him, you can walk with him, you can enjoy him, and you can be with him forever, if you repent and believe the gospel. Turn and make him Lord and follow him. You can do that. Listen, I want that to be true. I want every Christian, as you're seeing that, to know that's true of you. To know that's true of you, that he is yours forevermore. But if you're not a Christian yet, I don't want you to sing that emptily, or, or even worse. I don't want you to convince yourself that something is true of you that's not. That would be the worst 
offense that we could do today. But if you'll trust Christ, if you'll come to him in faith, if you'll humble yourself and believe, ask him to forgive you and give you this new life that he promises, this is you, this is yours, this is his promise to you. Let's pray. Father, Father God, thank you for making the means by which we can even call you that, that you're not a stranger to us. Much more so, you're not an enemy of us. But you are our Father who's adopted you into your family forever and ever, and it's because of Jesus. Jesus who made a way. Jesus who suffered where we should have suffered and was punished like we should have been punished. Jesus who took our sins on him and paid for them. Jesus who lived like we should have lived perfectly in every way. Tempted for sure, but never sinning so that we could be made righteous. Father, we thank you for that gift of righteousness, that Jesus died for sins and was raised to life so we could have life, new life now, new life always. So, Father, we can sing this because it's true. Father, I pray specifically right now for that one hearing, everyone sitting in this room who can't. I don't want them to be deceived or deluded. I want them to feel the full weight of this, the seriousness of this. If they stay on the path they're on right now, it only leads to death and judgment and hell. That's it. That's not hate. That's truth. But the antidote to that truth is hope. It's Christ. You don't have to. You don't have to stay that course. You've been given an invitation and offer a hand that says, come and follow me. Instead, repent, change course, believe this good news, follow me. So, Father, I pray that some would, even right now. Pray that they would. Lord, be glorified in our singing. Be glorified not just what comes out of our mouths, but what's in our hearts because of the faith that's there and how we respond to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.